Jerry Fragon and Doug Connolly work for Taylor Fragon Capital Management. All opinions expressed should not be relied upon for your individual investment advice. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Taylor Fragon Capital Management and its clients may maintain positions in securities discussed. No portion of the presentation serves as the receipt of or as a substitute for personalized investment advice from Taylor Fragon Capital Management. If you are a Taylor Fragon client, please remember to contact Taylor Fragon in writing if there are any changes in your personal financial situation or investment objectives for the purpose of reviewing, evaluating, or revising our previous recommendations and or services, or if you would like to impose, add, or to modify any reasonable restrictions to our investment advisory services. A copy of Taylor Fragon Capital Management's current written disclosure brochure discussing our advisory services and fees is available upon request. Welcome again to this week's installment of the Long Only Podcast. I'm Doug. I'm Jerry. And we're here again to talk about optimism in life and in the markets. That longest season of the year <clears throat> looks like it's coming to a close, Jerry. Which season is that? Maricopa County election season. <laughs> so, And it's just in time for us to enter that next season of the year, which is college football quarterback transfer, transfer portal season. Okay. So all the quarterbacks are shifting around. Here's my analogy, Jerry. Try this on. Could. This is very tortured. I'm going to just say it. Could the transfer portal be the perfect analog to switching back and forth between different investment strategies? Hmm. It's really, it's not the perfect analog. That's not, that's definitely not true. That's interesting. I mean, I don't know how good it is for college football. It certainly is not good for the individual investor or investors of any kind to be switching strategies around. I'm not sure it's good for college football teams to be switching quarterbacks around. Well, it may be good for the individual team, but it doesn't seem to be. We are to the point where, as Jerry Seinfeld said, we're basically rooting for laundry. So it it seems like it's got a very – here's one of my uh, big – this is something that could be a good thing about the recent name, image, and likeness rules in college football. And we'll get back to investment strategies in a minute. But what about this? It seems to me that now that players are cashing in while they're in college, for instance, the Texas quarterback, Quinn Ewers, has, has an Aston Martin, okay? 19 and has an Aston Martin. Wow. So since they're able to cash in legally 
before there might have been some cashing in, but it was under the table. It seems to me that there's less concerns about holding one's, oneself out for bowl games and things like that. Or you would think there would be. You know, if you're making millions of dollars in college, you're going to get paid some no matter what. Sounds like the risk of getting hurt in a college game is suddenly less because the difference between what you make as a pro and what you make as a collegiate has, has shrunk. So, but I don't, I think that's a kind of, if we were thinking about everything rationally, but I, I just feel like it's still going to be the same. You're going to see more of the same, which is despite the fact that these players are cashing in now, they're going to continue to protect their bodies for the pro game. So I don't know. Well, I guess, it, you know, I don't know the answer to this question. Did, maybe you do. What What is the ratio of the typical, well, let's start with the average, say, NFL player. Um, eh, maybe that's not even right. How about the average NFL quarterback? What percentage of his income comes from endorsements? What percentage comes from actually being paid by the team to play the game? I don't have time to research that kind of easily Googleable statistic. I don't know. That's a good question. It is because, it, I mean, if, it, if the percentage of endorsements is higher, then obviously the bowl game doesn't become that important. Yes. Or, I mean, getting hurt in the bowl game isn't as important. And marginal players always wanted as many games as possible. Although play. I guess if you're hurt, you can't get endorsements anymore. That's not that's true. But it's not like, like the classic case is Marcus Lattimore. He's a great back for South Carolina about 10 years ago. Really big pro potential. There's recently I don't an article. know Marcus, but that's okay. But he's good, good kid. He had two devastating knee injuries before he left college and was a real legitimate pro prospect. And now he's coaching in a, like a division eight school in Oregon. Okay. And he's, but there was a recent ESPN article about him and he's made his peace with the things. And he was a folk hero in South Carolina, no matter, no matter what. Um, and he, he was, so he's not necessarily a tragic case. So he was a Gamecock. Yes, he was. Yep. Not necessarily a tragic case because I think it's, he's got a certain peace with how things have worked out and he's not, his life isn't in a death spiral or anything like that, but there definitely was some dollars that were missed out on. Um, and I think that you're going to see less of that. You know, any, any player who's got a sure thing, is going to be cashing into a degree in college. No. So, but anyway, that's my, Mm. that's my thoughts on college football. So how do we relate that back to investment strategy change? Well, I mean, now we're just talking about, we're, we're doing some marketing work and I'm, I've got my, I was answering some frequently asked questions for some marketing materials. And it got me to thinking about cycling back and forth between strategies. It's a big problem uh, for everyone. We all, we got, we can all fall prey to it. Because the problem with this is that you can actually cycle back and forth between investment successful investment strategies, and for you personally, it works out awfully. Yeah, well, there's some statistics out there that show that the typical there's a there was a study by Dalbar that showed that the typical mutual fund investor earned far less than the a market rate of return over. I think there were like twenty minimum twenty year periods of time, and the reason was because of the, the constant buying and selling of funds at the most inopportune time. And the numbers were stark. I mean, I, I think, I, I don't know if they're still doing that study. We could easily Google that and find out. Uh, but I think the numbers were stark. It was like picking this out of thin air, but the ratios were close. If, you know, if the average rate of return in the, in the market averages were 12% per year, the, the average investor was getting like three. It was pretty ridiculous. And, and, it, and, you know, why, 
Why is that the case? Because they're shifting strategies right at the point in time where, you know, you, they blow out right at the point where something's been doing poorly for a while. And just as it's about to finally turn into have its day in the sun, they're out and they're moving to something that had done well. And then it starts to falter. So it's pretty simple to see why that happens. And yet it's a it was an ongoing and I'm guessing it's still an ongoing problem. I mean, that's that's typically what happens. And one of the things that was most surprising about it, and this is something that a lot of advisors, ourselves included, have to look in the mirror on, is it, those weren't just people that were of, were working off of their own devices. Those inclu- that included people who are, you know, working with an advisor. So how does that happen? Um, it shouldn't. I think one of the greatest enemies of investing, successful investing, is activity. I kind of view it like the episode of The Simpsons where Homer became a boxer because he had an iron skull and no one could really punch him out. But he just the key was he just had to let the other guy just do everything and punch himself out. Then Homer could knock him over. But if Homer did any activity, his poor aerobic capacity would take over. So you have to you really do have to have a commitment towards doing very, very little. Now, that being said, if you're all in cash, be centered, be still, be centered, be still. Yes. If you're all in cash and you do little, then that's a problem. Uh, and if you're on one stock, that could work out very well for you bad or, or poorly. The key is get some semblance of a decent plan, if not a really good plan, and then and then leave it alone. But how do you know this is where the art comes in to a degree? How do you know when you're in a strategy that isn't going to work out and a strategy that just hasn't worked out yet? That's a great question. I think that the answer to that is more about what's going on structurally inside the strategy. And let's just use funds because those are you know mutual funds because those are easy to categorize into a particular strategy. You can use the same criteria if you were hiring a money manager to manage an individual portfolio, a separately managed account portfolio for you. But let's just, just talk about funds for simplicity. I think the, the best uh, example or the let's say the best advice for somebody would be if there's been some significant structural change in the fund, the fund manager, um, the size of the fund. Those are the those are things to consider as being red flags as to why you might be at a higher risk, let's say, of having an, a mistake be made or or, or being in a in a in something that may not perform well. I think the most obvious examples that I've experienced almost four decades now doing this is the size of the fund. Frankly, I think the larger the fund the less likely it's going to perform well. Or let's just say the the more likely it's going to, it certainly is not going to perform better than the market, the bigger that it is. It it has a much harder, it's a harder task for a large fund. When I say large, you know, tens of billions, there's plenty of funds out there with tens of billions of dollars and hundreds of billions of dollars in them. And for them to be able to outperform with that size, it's, it's simply because they become the market. They are the market. It's almost axiomatic that they're not going to outperform the market. Um, if that's not the issue, then the other is, well, what about management and management tenure and who's been, who's managing it now, who was managing it before? I think that's the other thing that we'll see can create problems is changes in fund manager or, or, you know, and even could be management teams. You know, how long has that team been managing versus now there's a new team in there? Um, I think those are the, the two things that, that, 
as I've observed over time, have affected the, the performance of, of funds. Um, and that's not to say that a new management team doesn't come in and do a great job, but now you have to, you, you want to make sure you've delved into their, you know, history and their record and what their style and what their strategy is. Cause a lot of times these, these fund managers or I should say fund sponsors or fund companies, you know, they'll, they, they, I don't know how much effort or how much diligence they're doing. And, uh, you know, if a fund manager leaves, who they're bringing in really has the same discipline so that, because we, we've often said, yeah, you got to have the same disciplined process over multiple market and economic cycles, frankly, for a lifetime. And believe that investors should really stay invested for a lifetime. That doesn't mean you might not, you're not going to use funds here and there to do whatever it is that you want to do in your life, you live your life. But generally speaking, stay invested over your lifetime. And the more possible it is for you to have that same, uh, this, the same disciplined process, managing portfolios for you, managing your portfolio for your lifetime, it's very likely that, that that's the most important thing to you ultimately having success. Um, so, I, you know, I've had it asked me before, if you weren't a professional money manager, how would you go about having your money managed? And I've often said, I, I would look for the, the most experienced manager I could find that had a relatively small portfolio to manage. Small meaning in today's world, you know, single digit billions, at least, if not even hundreds of millions under management. Um, because they're just simply going to be able to do what they do best for longer when they have a smaller portfolio to work with. Well, that being said, though, if you look at the holdings, though, what if their holdings are Facebook, Amazon, you know, Netflix? If they're if they're just the market, then you have to you also have to ask yourself, you know, are you getting someone who's just basically shadow indexing? Well, that's where I, I say you have to pay attention to the disciplined process. What is what is their pro, what's their philosophy? Um, and you want to have. The, sim- the same basic philosophy running because it, it, the fact of the matter is, and we've said this before too, it, it, this isn't rocket science. It's tenacity. It's discipline. It's sticking to a strategy. It's sticking to a way of doing things. If you have somebody that's sticking to the, to a, a particular way of doing things and it's reasonable and it's, you know, and it's been applied over long periods and you can see a record and you stay with that even when it's doing poorly and when it's doing really well and when it's doing poorly and when it's doing really well, you're going to do well over time because I mean, just because you're going to do well over time, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to likely outperform the averages um, because you have somebody with a, you know, semblance of a sane strategy with some experience um, applying that discipline over long periods. I, I, I'm not, you know, the, nothing is ever guaranteed, but that's as close as you can get to assuring that you're going to outperform over time. Let's take ourselves back to COVID. And Ugh. yes, Ugh. you're not can just we, saying that. Can we, is COVID still a thing? It depends on where you live. A, a friend of mine said that one time during the height of COVID, is COVID still a thing? It shouldn't have been. Anyway, I might have said this. I digress. The, I might have said this on the podcast, but COVID for me after about a year became like watching fingernails on a chalkboard. No, like watch well <laughs> that too. But it was like when you're when you turn on the TV on a Thursday night in 2010, and ER still on. You're mm. like, oh, that's still on. I didn't know that. I thought mm. that was done. But that's that's how COVID for me was. After yeah, we were fortunate in Arizona. But anyway, not to, it's a tired subject. But 
you see, you see predictably stocks go down, your portfolio goes down. Going down kind of became when the economy stops for right or for wrong, stocks are going to go down. So going down kind of became the cost of doing business. But besides the portfolio merely going down, what might red flags have been to individual investors then if if they're putting their trust in a market manager? Would simply someone who immediately pivots, do you think that's a giant red red flag in a situation like that? That's always a red flag. For quick pivots are, are often right. I don't say often. I say always. Responding to market conditions is a little bit of an, that's, is, is very that's overrated. Gently. Yeah, that's over. That's, that's, that's what somebody who's trying to gloss over that they don't know what they're doing or they don't have a discipline. I mean, responding to market conditions. That's so, and it's commonly used. Yes. Um, it's sold as a good thing. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, if there's anything that I would say has been a recipe for, for disaster is being reactionary in this business. Um, and that to me smacks of reaction, you know, well, we're just responding to market conditions. Well, maybe your response to market conditions is, um, that's not to say that there aren't, there aren't moves that can be made at the margin given market conditions. Okay. I like going all in the cash is not at the margin. No. So margin, I always say it, it's part of being centered and be still is, you know, what, what are my overall long-term plans and how is my mix between the assets that I have um, lined up with that long-term plan? And if something's dramatically, like I'm dramatically overweighted in my, my growth portfolio, we, we run two primary portfolios, a growth portfolio and an income portfolio, the income portfolio being more conservative, stable one, but also doesn't get as good a long-term return. If I'm overweighted in my growth, you know, okay, I, I may pull that back or will, I will pull that back. We, we've done a lot of that over the years, but that's at the margin. That's not making wholesale reactions to what's happening in the market. We're changing, we're, we're, we're making a change in our way of doing things because we're reacting to what's happening with the market. I mean, I've, I've also always been asked, what would cause you to go to 100% cash? And it's pretty much nothing. And uh, short of, you know, the KGB walking through the door and saying your business is shut down and you can no longer start businesses and you're not, you're not going to go work out in the field and, you know, till the land for the, for the party members. It's party basically lead, party leaders. What would cause us to go into cash is basically when – Conditions were so bad that you started having to use cash for toilet paper. Something like that. So, because if the, the system it, were totally blown up, yes, and, you know, exactly. In which case, the diversification of your portfolio or lack thereof isn't going to matter, right? Which we are always in a in a condition of, to a degree, moving towards that, and to a degree, moving away from that. Yeah. <laughs> we happen to be kind of in a position of moving towards that right L- now. A little bit more, I'd say. Um, it's, yeah. Three steps backward, one step forward, but uh, yeah. Yeah, and we've been, you know, sometimes you go three steps forward and one te- yeah. step backward. Lately, it's certainly at least been two steps backward and one step forward, or one step forward and now we're in the two steps backward. Um, it's just the nature. So when I when I kind of scare people and say, you know, there's very little that's good going on out there. Well, okay, but that's market-related, kind of, almost kind of market-related. that, And I'm not going to react necessarily to that other than at the margins. Because this too shall pass. Multiple market and economic cycles. 
you can be your prepper and have your doomsday scenario and things like that. And I've certainly fallen into that. Maybe I'm falling into it now. But anyway, my point is, is that the, but of those questions, those are largely, those questions about the the condition of society are much, should be much more directed at, I would say things like your skill set and your spiritual health, as opposed to your portfolio, because, because uh, those things can actually, you know, make it, make a difference. Your portfolio, the, 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 you know, the, the stocks are going to be there or they're not, but People are, spend way too much time uh, positioning their portfolio for disaster, and they lose money doing it. And they find themselves not—they're not—they didn't prepare for you know success. And in reality, maybe they—they'd be you know better off learning to you know grow a garden and buy some bullets. Mm-hmm. But the, but the but the composition of their portfolio really didn't really wouldn't have moved the needle nearly as much in terms of the the, the types of scenarios they're imagining or fantasizing. Or hoping to happen. Well, and don't be um, fooled into thinking that media drives this these narratives back and forth to, as a means to be able to sell their product and and you know sensationalism and and you know scary stories get people to pay attention. Um, <clears throat> the likelihood is you. You know, if it's Friday today and you go through Saturday and Sunday and refresh and come back Monday, you're still at work. <laughs> you're still sitting down at your desk and doing what you do or, yep. or doing whatever manual work that you do. Um, because what else is there? You know, do you hide under a rock? I mean, it's it's amazing how much that tendency is in humans to do that, to just you re- become so recluse that frozen by paranoia. Um, there's a lot of that going on right now. A lot of it. And I think that it's important to, within your own doomsday fantasy, at least do something that makes sense. Right. My favorite is the argument for gold. Now, look, look at what gold's done over the last 12 years. It's not pretty. But setting that aside for a moment, if you want to prepare for Armageddon, does having the gold ETF help you out with that? Because no. you're talking about a situation where does a stockpile of food really help you? Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> but your but your your stockpile of gold held in London somewhere, you know, that's how how much is that going to, going to help you? So even in the the, the disaster scenario, having gold held a, basically in a halfway across the world doesn't do you a, a lot of uh, a lot of help, and and that's assuming even gold can help. Period. So. Uh, it's important that there's, that just goes to show how much cognitive dissonance there is in a lot of these, uh, these plans. So Jerry, any final thoughts for the road? I think you got to try and stay positive in this type of environment. We've said that before and we'll say it in the future, but it doesn't do you any good to just, like I said, crawl under a rock. Um, there are there are some good things that are happening out there, and I think uh, time has a way of curing things. You know, um, I think we all get too caught up in the politics of the moment, and you know, whatever is the story of the day. I'm sure there's lots of bad things going on out there, but there've always been bad things going on. I mean, you look at you know, we talked about a book I was reading, Bloodlands, um, which I, I highly recommend, but not for the faint of heart or the squeamish, because it is just so horrific what, what happened in the 
in the in the 1930s and 40s in 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 Europe, particularly in Central Europe. Imagine how much you'll recommend it when you actually finish it. Almost done. Okay, almost done. Uh, but it, I, I I'm slow to read it because I can't keep reading it, the wars that are that are going on. But I I, I mentioned that simply because. Yeah, the world went through the the most horrific period there with tens of thousands and ultimately tens of millions of people being literally murdered between the Stalin-Hitler, you know, duopoly. Um, And, you know, so kind of putting things in perspective is super important. Um, The world has made some progress since then. And uh, it's, it's, it's maybe in a two steps backward, one step forward mode at the moment, but fortunately we, we don't have that going on. And, and, you know, I I would say that a lot of the reasons why we have some of the negative things that are going on right now is because of all of that having happened. Um, I think a lot of Western Europe's paralysis and they have been quite, you know, paralyzed in many ways over the last 60, 70 years is just the horrific horror of what happened in that period of time um, has made it very difficult for, for, for Europe to recover. It's, 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 it's literally, you know, almost we're coming up on a hundred years since some of this stuff happened. And, you know, we get to 2030s um, the horror that was happening in, in, the, in the Soviet union was, was just beginning then. And I mean, here, a hundred years, almost a hundred years, 90 years later, you know, we're still, I think, kind of digging out from that horror and, and, and mistakes are being, have been, been, been made over this, these decades that we're, we're still, we're still paying for. So it's kind of the kind of thing of the inability to put that behind, which I understand. I mean, the, if nothing else, the post-traumatic stress disorder that came from it, but the inability to, to recognize the reasons why that happened um, and then recognize the things that will get you out of it. I think what's the problem is, is that freedom and free enterprise has not been as, as, um, universally accepted as being the solution because in some ways it was used as the, as the uh, scapegoat, right? Um, it was absolutely not that. So we, you know, we could do 12 podcasts on this topic, but I'm just saying that, uh, you know, when if when you start thinking "woe is me," the world is horrible. Yeah, might want to start reading some of those history books. All right, sounds like a good place to leave it. So, in the meantime, I'm Doug, and I'm Jerry, and we will see you next week on the Long Only Podcast. Please follow us, rate us, uh, check us out, TaylorForgone.com, and give us a five star review somewhere where you get your podcasts.